So welcome back to Behavioral Science for Brands podcast. I'm Michael Aaron. I'm Richard Shelton. And today we're talking umlauts, ice cream, and what's in a name. And we're going to use Haagen-Dazs as a brand that can really peel back the onion and show us some of these amazing behavioral science principles that's been so core to their success. So let's get started. So growing up to me, the fanciest ice cream was always Haagen-Dazs. It stood apart from all other ice creams that you could walk down the freezer aisle and, and get, or even if you could be lucky enough to find a store, it was not Ben and Jerry's or all of these, you know, good humor ice creams. It stood far and above as sophisticated and fancy. And I said to you, as we were getting ready for this podcast, that it was so sophisticated because it was international. It came with that aura of being such a sophisticated international brand. And then you shook me <laughs> to my roots, Richard, when you told me what? That it is an American brand. Don't believe it. <laughs> yeah. Don't it, believe it. It's set up in 1961 by Ruben Mattis, uh, an American of Polish origin. But like you, he associated Scandinavia, Denmark in particular, with sophistication. So he creates this brand name that basically implies it comes from Denmark. Must I mean, Hagen, be. Yeah, yeah. Hagen-Dazs itself is a completely made-up set of words. But he calls it Hagen-Dazs. sounds a bit Danish. He sticks an umlaut. It's over the A. That's a, that's a fiction. They don't do that in Denmark. He even sticks a map of Denmark onto the tub. Now, everything is about creating this uh, association with Denmark. And that's clever because behavioral scientists argue our expectations of a product affect our experience. And words are one of the ways of creating that expectation. And so if you make it sound Danish, it has that aura of sophistication. And that will actually affect your experience of eating it. So besides disillusioning me, <laughs> yeah. you proved something for me personally, which was I don't think I even knew that umlauts weren't used over A's, but I took the brand's essence and core and it told me something that it was more premium. It told me that it was more sophisticated than a traditional American brand. They're tapping into something in sociology or psychology. Yeah, I, I would call it expectancy theory. Our expectations influence the experience. And I think one of the great things about behavioral science is it's not just a logical argument. People aren't just using rationality to try and persuade you this is the case. There are experiments that back it up. So probably the most famous is a 2005 study by Brian Wonsing at Cornell. Works with a, a cafeteria. And sometimes when people go in, they might be served chocolate pudding. Other people get exactly the same chocolate pudding. This is the same recipe, same batch, but it's called satin chocolate pudding. And then later on, those people are asked to rate the taste. And there is a statistically significant 7% improvement in the taste if it got the fancy label. So expectations that can be developed by a good piece of copywriting, a good name, have an, a genuine effect on our actual enjoyment of a product. So, Richard, when you told me about Haagen-Dazs not being an American brand, my curiosity just went wild. I said, well, who else has used this tactic? And Atari, one of the biggest game consoles in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s, I always thought 
Japanese brand made because that's where the center of consumer electronics was at that time. Not true. The name itself is inspired by Japanese. It means to hit a target, but the rest of it made in Sunnyvale, California. The logo is meant to look like Mount Fuji, but nothing else about that brand is Japanese. And it got me thinking, the makers of Atari knew that for their brand to be successful, they should borrow the credibility of the Japanese excellence in consumer electronics, same way that Haagen-Dazs borrowed that credibility to make ice cream. So, you know, these examples, Haagen-Dazs and Atari, using what the industry would call foreign branding, may feel a little on the line in 2022. Was it appropriate to take another culture, use its superiority in in an industry, and then take advantage of it for their own benefits? And I think we can all agree today, it may be viewed differently in 2022. Yeah, I think these things feel amusing and acceptable when you're looking back 60 years. If a brand was making that decision now, probably a bit more dicey. But lots to learn Mm. from it. I think the bigger question is, is there ethics and morals that we all have to be thinking about as we dive deeper into behavioral science? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. And I think it's an important one. Um, My argument would be behavioral science is essentially neutral. It's just a tool. Makes sense. How you use that tool is a crucial thing. If you are using these tactics, which boost the probability of persuading someone, if you're using them for good, absolutely fine. If you're using them in a way that is manipulative or the consumer wouldn't like that being done to them, then I think you have a bit of a, a problem. There's a brilliant bit, in fact, at the beginning of Richard Thaler's book, Nudge, where he talks about an American philosopher, John Rawls. And Rawls has this argument called the publicity principle. And essentially, I'm pretty sure it's the publicity principle, but essentially it's the argument that if someone knew you were doing this, would you feel embarrassed? So if someone knew that you were pretending to be Danish, would you be embarrassed? And I think that's a pretty good guide for running through any of these tactics. If you wouldn't want people to find out you're using them, then maybe you should leave them alone. Inspired by the Bible, a good lesson for your kids and a pretty smart way to do marketing. Okay, so let's take a break hear from our sponsors, and when we come back, we're going to dive deeper into this topic. Behavioral Science for Brands is brought to you today by Method One. Method One builds digital-first marketing systems to help brands grow. They're behavior change experts who solve business challenges by creating meaningful connections with consumers. With deep disciplines in many brand categories, reach out to them if you'd like to be leveraging behavioral science in your marketing or advertising. So using haagen as an example of foreign branding is instructive and it teaches us some things, but there's really a lot more to the haagen case study that we want to bring to table here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the bigger learning from them is probably what they did in the, gosh, was it late 80s, early yeah, 90s? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. It's all the BBH advertising. What they did so brilliantly there was tap into an idea called price relativity. So they repositioned Hagen Dars as a very kind of adult, sexy, sensual product. And by splitting it away from the rest of the category, which was, you know, childish, day glow colors, you know, stuff that you give to your kids. Ice cream truck going down the street. <laughs> exactly. They, um, they break that price comparison. Now, what's so interesting is a theme from behavioral science is when people think about how much a product is worth, they 
don't just weigh up the benefit they get from it and then the price. What's crucial is rather than that kind of absolute evaluation, they do it relatively. So what we're prepared to pay for something again and again is driven by what we compare it to. So Hagen dazs changing this kind of mental comparison set away from low value, cheap, childish brands suddenly allowed them to charge a much, much greater amount. Now, one of the great things about behavioral science is this is never empty theorizing. It's always based on on a study, on an experiment. Exactly. And this, we have some data that we've done ourselves. So 404 Americans, we went out and said, look, here's some Ben and Jerry's. It costs $3.99. Here's some Walmart own label. It costs $1.99. How good's the Ben and Jerry's? How good value the Ben and Jerry's is? And 27% of people think it's very good value. Next group, same price Ben and Jerry's ice cream, same size tub, but this time we're comparing it to a $4.99 Halo top. It's exactly the same Ben and Jerry's, exactly the same price, but the proportion thinking it's very good value jumps by about 50%. It's now 42%. We are not weighing up quality and cost. We are comparing items to the easily easiest available alternatives. So if you as a brand can shift your mental comparison set, you can shift willingness to pay by orders of magnitude. Another famous example of changing your comparison set is when Keurig invented K-Cups. Oh, that's one. And when Keurig first launched K-Cups, they said, how can we set the price so that we can make more money on each sale of a K-Cup uh, than we could in a bag of ground coffee. So if you compare a bag of ground coffee, call it $4.99 at the grocery store, to how much coffee you get in a bag, to how much coffee is in a K-cup, a bag of coffee in K-cups would cost like $150. Yeah. Yeah. So what Keurig brilliantly did is they said, look, you can go to a Starbucks and pay $3.99 for a coffee, or you can get that same great cup of coffee from a Keurig K-cup for only 60 cents. So they changed the comparison. Rather than the other coffees you can get at home and brew at home, which would be a few cents a cup, they compare themselves to going out to a store and getting it from a Starbucks or from a local barista. And in doing that, they change what their price is being compared to. Similar strategy, right? Yeah, absolutely. And point is, you know, that is a phenomenal order of magnitude in, in terms of what you've just changed consumers are prepared to pay. So you can take a well-known behavioral bias, price relativity is not a secret, apply it creatively to your brand, and you can make hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, this is a real commercial opportunity. And one that is stretches marketers to not just think, what's the ad campaign? Yeah. Instead, it's to say, what's the positioning of the product? How are we solving a consumer need in a bigger, broader way? And if we can change the dynamic that people think about our brand, we can change the profitability, yeah. we can change its success. Yeah. Richard, we're talking serious behavioral <laughs> science stuff here, but can we miss not asking your favorite type of ice cream? Oh, easy, What's easy. your favorite ice cream? Uh, a knobbly bobbly. <laughs> I mean, everyone's it, it, Translate it. Translate it for us Americans here. So it is an amazing ice cream. It's pretty hard to get hold of. It is a kid's ice cream on a lolly stick, and it is just kind of dunked into hundreds and thousands. That's covered in these uh, 100,000 pieces. It's absolutely lovely. Best ice cream by far. Pieces of? 
Chocolate? Oh, no, no. Do you not know hundreds and thousands? They're like... Um, no. <laughs> uh, bits of sugar, basically. Aha. Coloured sugar. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Got it. And this is a treat that young British children can have. Yeah, nobbly-bobbly. <laughs> nobbly-bobbly. Well, of course, there we have it. Yeah. <laughs> so, Richard, we always want to end our podcast with giving our marketers clear, quick hits on the most important things they should take away from today's talk. So two big things. The first is we experience what we expect to experience. We've been talking about how using adjectives can set up positive expectations, but it could be focusing on the serve. It could be focusing on the price. You as a marketer have to make sure when your customer experiences your product, you've set up those expectations to be as positive as possible. And then secondly, I think this is the bigger idea. People do not weigh up prices in an absolute sense. It's a relative decision. So how can you change your consumer's mental comparison set? And if you do that, there is a phenomenal opportunity to increase revenue, increase the margin you're getting. Excellent. And that brings us to the end of our show today. If you like what you heard, please give us a nice rating. Give us a nice review. We'd love to hear from you. My name is Michael Aaron Flicker. And I'm Richard Schotten. Hit us up at hello at theconsumerbehaviorlab.com. Let us know how you like the podcast, things you'd like us to cover. What's your favorite type of ice cream? Mm-hmm.